Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with Dan Benton, who runs Benton Capital Management. That is a family office. He was also the founder and CEO of Andor Capital in 2001 to 2016, which was one of the best performing tech hedge funds of its time. I knew Dan only by reputation back then. Um, Now he slums it with me a little bit as we've just gotten a bit older. Dan, welcome back to OK Computer. Thank you very much for having me. Well, listen, you and I had a great conversation. It was back in the last week of April. It was right before, I guess it was going to be that deluge of, of big cap tech earnings, okay? And what was really interesting about that is that, you know, you know, the stock market was making highs the first week of January, all-time highs, okay? And so, a lot of people really didn't want to believe that the Fed, when they said in late November that they were going to start raising interest rates to kind of back inflation that they were going to do what they said they were going to do, right? And it seemed to be a little bit of a delayed reaction from mega cap tech land. But we saw a lot of those kind of high valuation, more speculative sort of stuff in tech, SPACs, recent IPOs, crypto, all started careening lower. Um, but I mean, it, that started in you know the middle of 2021. Uh, yeah. Right. And, and and I guess what was interesting to me, we always knew that these top six or seven names make up 40% of the NASDAQ 100 and about 25% of the S&P 500, and everyone's waiting for them to crack, right? And so, you and I had this conversation. I think a lot of our listeners also know that back when you were at Goldman Sachs and you were a big-time technology analyst, this was in the 90s, you came up with these 20 rules for tech investing, all right? So, I'm just setting the stage here. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Porter Collins on, on the tape with myself, Danny Moses, uh, Guy Adami and uh, and and Vinny, um, and he said, you know, a couple weeks ago, Dan, you had the illustrious Dan Benton on your podcast, and why are you buying tech stocks here when his twenty rules clearly don't line up with buying them here? All right, so that's the backdrop. Dan, welcome. Thank you. So after this Q3 earnings period, mm-hmm. we had Amazon gap down, we had Microsoft gap down, we had. Facebook gap down, right? We had Alphabet gap. I mean, these were massive gaps, right? Like like multiple day moves. So I started buying some of these stocks. Okay, so that's when Porter pushes back and says, "Dan, why are you buying these things?" So talk to me a little bit. You've seen lots of tech cycles here. Okay, how did the culmination of these stocks finally missing, guiding down, and investors wholesale selling? How did that feel to you? As just thinking about it as like one thing. It felt like it was the second or third inning. Um, And look, I have, throughout my career, done a much better job at calling tops than bottoms. I'm always late um, getting back in. Uh, At a top, you see the market does it, shows you. It gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And we saw that back in 2007, uh, fourth quarter of, of 2007. I mean, that was Jim Cramer's, fa- uh, no, Jim Cramer's uh, Four Horsemen. Yep. You know, so if you look 
back at the fourth quarter of 2007, you know, Jim Cramer's four horsemen year, you know, RIM, Apple, Google, um, and Amazon, they were kind of the only things that worked in the fourth quarter of that year. We lost everything in our portfolio outside of those names, um, you know, in the second quarter, the third quarter of 2007. So by the time you got to the fourth quarter, it's like this very small percentage of our portfolio is working. And then you're just tuned into, you get this negative data points that started in in, in uh, January of 2008, and you're just ready to pull you're ready to pull the ripcord. And that's what we did. We bailed and frankly got the portfolio net short, but that's a whole other story. I don't find, and look, you're going to go over the top, right? But you're going to over the top by 10, 20%. You're not going to you're not going to go down with it fighting. And, you know, the first rule is sell technology stocks when estimates are going down. That's when we really started seeing estimates going down was, you know, kind of obviously ahead of the financial crisis, yeah. but that's what led to the financial crisis. So, you know, so where are we now? We've just started cutting numbers. Now, you know, back to the, you know, what were the early warning things, to your point before, SPACs, companies without revenues, companies without earnings, you know, fancy software names that I don't really even know what they do, but they were trading on, you know, some metric that wasn't earnings or cash flow. You know, those disappeared really starting in the in in the second half of 2001. You know, every new IPO broke price, some by a lot. Um, so we had that backdrop going in. And yet, you know, we had, we, you're right. I mean, the top you know, the FANG stocks, you know, throw Microsoft in there, were still doing very well. They didn't miss numbers. They were fine. Now, you're seeing the first, now Amazon, I think, had estimate cuts before. But we're really seeing, you know, early rounds of estimate cuts, at least with Apple, at least with Google. You know, so my, 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 uh, my glib answer to when you start buying is you, you, you buy after the last estimate cut. Unfortunately, yep. you, don't, you only know one. No, they won't, like, no one will ring the bell down It's there. like NBER, you know, telling you that, oh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the recession started three quarters ago because we changed our numbers. So second or third inning. And so again, so if we kind of go back, you know, just, just a few months here at the time, you know, we we're saying that we we're seeing so much devastation. Station that, that the, the bulls would point to it and say, maybe it's different this time. Maybe these five stocks have these tremendous moats and managements and monopolies, right? And they're going to be able to weather this much better, let's say, than some of these companies, like you said, that um, were losing money, that were reliant on the debt markets and in a rising interest rate environment, that sort of thing. And so I guess that was kind of the narrative back then. And just to be clear, I didn't find any of these major mega moats, if you want to call them, that interesting then because all all of them were trading at multiples. Apple was trading at 28 times, you know, for expected earnings and sales growth next year of let's say mid single digits with flat margins, right? And 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 again, not even anticipating the fact that demand might come in during a weaker environment. And we're not talking about supply chains, we're not talking about inflation at that point. So to me, that was kind of the narrative for me across all of those massive names here. But here we are now. We just had the first cuts and even Apple couldn't even get themselves to materially guide lower. They had to wait two weeks for a headline about some COVID lockdown in China to do it. So what does that tell you about the, the kind of mentality of these massive managers? And again, we're going to go through it. I mean, Amazon just announced today 10,000 layoffs, right? We're seeing Google basically halted hiring, will be firing. You know, we saw Meta last week, 11,000. I mean, the list is going to keep on going here. So, Second or third inning, even for these big guys. What's unemployment? 3.7%? Yeah. 
I mean, it's hard to think that we're anywhere near the bottom when we need to push. You know, unfortunately, we need to. You know, the Fed, the Fed's job right now is to push unemployment up, yeah. and you know, guess what? We are now seeing layoffs at at the most resistant companies in our economy. Uh, well, let's see what happens in the rest. But in, the pull in, forward. In the, I mean, can, can you can you think about it if you're going to look at like the hiring of 2020 and 2021 versus the firing in 2022 that'll likely bleed into 2023, and you're still going to be above those kind of 2020 mid-year numbers once they're done cutting. So they're taking off some of the excess. It looks like the housing market. It looks like commodities. It looks like all that stuff that massively overshot its mean reversion. But it might still stay on that kind of uptrend, if you will. So my my uh, my comment, which has been quoted back to me, so I, I even kind of forgot I said it, was uh, there are no cheap there there are no cheap technology stocks. There are only wrong estimates, and you know, let's see, yeah. let's let's I you know, and and to your point, that goes through the entire economy. This yeah. isn't just this yeah. isn't just. Uh, uh, tech. The other thing that's interesting is that every one of those companies you're talking about is way past their peak revenue growth rates. We're talking about, you know, about 20% maximum growth companies, single digits for 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 some companies. And didn't didn't Amazon have down uh, uh, e-commerce sales? Um, you know, I think that's right. Um, you know, Apple doesn't grow. How can Apple keep growing quickly? I mean, they're so big, and yeah. you know, the cell phone market doesn't grow. Um, so there are other businesses that can, but it's hard to move a company with that. Well, that and, and to base. your point, I think this is the one thing that kind of spooked investors, whether it be AWS, Azure, Microsoft, or Google Cloud, is that you're decelerating growth in the, those kind of core growth engines when their other businesses are a lot more mature. Right. So, you know, so these companies went from, um, you know, rapid growth companies to GARP companies, frankly, but then it didn't, but then, you know, during the course of this, this period with rates of zero for so long, I don't know how you I don't know how you define the reasonable price part of GARP. You know, a- Apple trading at you know close to 30 times earnings not growing very quickly and that's the correction. So you're right, we've had a massive valuation correction. We still haven't seen the numbers go down. Tech is an interesting animal. You know, cyclicals are supposed to trade at trough multiples at peak earnings. Tech trades at peak multiples on peak earnings yeah. because there's some, you know, idea that these are these are making secular changes. It's not a cyclical. These are secular stories, so that when things look great, they're just going to get better. It's funny, you know. You mentioned the unemployment and and the thing that the Fed is trying to do, and they're clearly, you know, over the course of 2023, with basically Fed funds going from zero to about four percent. So we had four consecutive 75 basis point hikes expected in December to be 50 basis points. That's what the CME Fed Watch tracker is, is suggesting. And then listen, if they do their job well enough, that means that they put the economy in a place that's much slower than where it was at the start of this year, and then you're going to see the expectations for rate hikes in 2023 just kind of fall off the map a little bit, right? And so, I kind of feel like we've gotten, at least if you look at the way the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield acted on that softer-than-expected CPI number, and when I say softer-than-expected, mildly softer that we saw last week, you saw the 10-year yield drop 30 basis points in a straight line, which you've been doing this a long time, that was like an insane move. 
unprecedented, right? So I guess I'm willing to say, and I'm not some brilliant macro mind, I'm just some kind of bozo who talks all the time about this sort of stuff confidently, okay? Um, I think that we probably have seen the peak in, in yield for this cycle. That's my bet, okay? And so maybe there's a scenario that's kind of softer than the worst case scenario as far as a landing is that if the Fed is now trying to bring inflation back to first mid single digits and then low single digits, Remember, pre-pandemic, their target on the upside was 2% inflation, okay? And let's just say that if major employers, some of these big tech companies, take off some of the excess of the last couple of years, maybe unemployment doesn't really get meaningfully above 4 or 4.5% or something, and maybe that would constitute a soft landing. And, and then we get back to these major tech companies doing what they do, which is very deflationary. What tech companies do is very deflationary. If we, on a global basis, are reversing Tom Friedman's uh, The World is Flat if we are onshoring, which is a terrible word. Yep. Um, reshoring, can we reshoring, say? Reshoring, friend-shoring, friend whatever yeah, it is, yeah. right? I mean, it's unbelievably inefficient yeah. uh, and it's going to you know, drive... It's inefficient productivity perspective. It also means we're going to be building a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not a commodity expert, but um, one would think there'll be an underlying bid there. Yeah. Just, you know, you mentioned that in our April pod. You just said that a lot of the stuff that would really benefit from uh, deglobalization. It, it was really, and that's something that stuck with me. Some some really good macro minds have been saying that. And again, we know that the disruption of the supply chains globally and how our tech companies, at least from a manufacturing standpoint, are so oriented with China, you know, that was already put in motion from the trade war in, in 17, 18, you know, during the Trump administration. So again, it just became abundantly clear that US multinationals have to kind of rethink the focus on Chinese labor and the way that their supply chains are oriented. So your point is, is that if a lot of that manufacturing is going to come back to the West, and, and hopefully it would come back to the US, those are good jobs. It really is that, you know, listen, talk to anybody who had a cat tractor dealership or whatever. When Amazon was building all of those, go on any highway in America and you see those huge warehouses, right? Yeah. That was good for the, the, the local, um, you know, if you were in manufacturing or, you know, heavy moving or equipment or anything like that. So it was good. So is this. I think we also need to think about what parts of tech are deflationary. Um, you know, electric cars aren't necessarily deflationary. Uh, you know, the latest iPhone probably costs more than the last iPhone. You're getting better price performance, right? There's, but it doesn't mean your price is going down. It just means you you may get you know a product that, in the case of phones, probably 10% better. But in general, you know, you're trying your new generation. You want it to be, you know, 50% better, or 100% better than the last generation. It doesn't mean you're taking the price down. Um, you know, when we think about and we may have talked about this last time, think about something like cloud. I don't know what percentage of the workloads out there are on clouds, on, on, on you know, some sort of managed cloud. I have to believe it is minuscule. What percent of the government do you think yeah, is, is tiny? Is, 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 it, 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 this is a multi-decade sort of thing. It's a multi-decade secular yeah. theme. So, and the, the beauties of secular themes is that they're not they're not economically sensitive. They're interest rate sensitive. Interest rates go down. You put you put a higher valuation on a secular theme. They, they're supposed to grow throughout them. So, one of the interesting premises that we're talking about. I don't know what Netflix's long-term growth. What's 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 advertising growth rate at Meta going to look like or at Google? These companies are now the industry, so they're going to look a hell of a lot more cyclical than secular. They have businesses with inside, inside them that are secular. 
That's a great point. If you think about Amazon, they've had this ad business that's been growing really fast. It's over $30 billion a year. And again, you could say that they were benefiting from a secular shift to digital ads. They're a huge retailer, right? And so a lot of these consumer package companies are advertising on there. You see that growth decelerate meaningfully. Investors who are looking at that and saying, well, we want to price this, or that helps us get to that valuation better. You start thinking about that a little differently. And then you think about AWS. And to your point, it's like, this is, you know, the public cloud is a massive secular shift, but it's been going on now for a decade, right? And so market share gains by Amazon are going to look less aggressive as more competition comes in and they compete on price a little bit. Right? One of the most frustrating things is that there aren't any pure plays on, yeah. on, on yeah, they're all every important tech innovation, I'm exaggerating, that we see right now is part of a Giant company, you know. How do you play AI? You, you can't. It's hard to own. You know, Google owns DeepMind. It's a great, great, great resource. You're going to own Google for DeepMind. Well, let's talk about the interest rate thing because you just mentioned that. You know, again, when when you think about, it, I think you said this in April. The most important, you know, defining factor for um, for stocks valuations is interest rates. So here we are. Okay, we just talked about the pace in which the Fed has been raising interest rates. I know that there's a lot of people out there, at least investors or in the pundit class, who you know said, you've never seen anything like this, what we're seeing in inflation. The Fed can't stop. You think they're going to be done with Fed funds somewhere between you know, 4.5% and 5%, and that's where the, kind of the futures are kind of looking at. But this is going to high single digits. What do you think the likelihood? I mean, I think you were probably started this year, you might have thought, okay, we can get back to the prior cycles highs, which is in Fed funds, you know, about 4%, that sort of thing. I'm just curious how you're thinking about it now. I think the calls for some of you know, these like high single digits you know, Fed funds, I think they're kind of going away a little bit, you know, and 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 maybe rightfully so. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating area to to focus on you know, for an extremely long period of time. We have had a a low interest rate environment, and and so you have an entire generation of investors who kind of you know I don't know I don't know what this means. We've had an extremely low. Uh, inflation environment. I don't remember what last time inflation was was talked about as something important. I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, and so, what happens when you all of a sudden we got we got eight percent inflation? It's like you know, and it goes you know five, six, eight, and 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 we see what's going on with commodity prices. We have uh, you know the the uh, reshoring or whatever it is as a secular theme. Oh, and we have a war in Ukraine yeah. that. Sounds pretty friggin' scary. This guy's threatening to use nuclear weapons. Yeah. I, I mean, and you were, you know, trying to come up with a coalition, and Europe had, you know, Europe had uh, had weak knees. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, they were all worried about uh, about not getting gas, and they're they're putting all these things in so that um, we'll, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do everything but this. Uh, it's kind of a terrible bargaining position, by the way. When I mean, you're fighting a war, to tell, tell the opposite, tell tell the, tell the enemy what you're not willing to do. I think as we've rolled forward, I'm not a I'm not an expert on on uh, on global events. Ukraine has clearly seized the momentum. Putin is on his heels. There really isn't any sign right now of the West capitulating and saying, "Oh no, we need to negotiate something." And so that inflationary fear. Part of that inflationary fear, I think, has been dissipated. 
I really would like to see unemployment go up. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we are seeing, you know, so we started out by essentially seeing commodity price inflation, yeah. right? We're seeing wage inflation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, every not-for-profit I'm working with, yeah. when I look at the budgets, we're seeing wage inflation, you know, five, six percent, you know, cost of living increases. You know, we just saw, what, an 8.3 percent Social Security, what was right. the number? So, so I, I mean, staggering let, numbers. Let, let's let's take a step back, because that's really important. So you said five or six percent wage gains when inflation's eight percent, so it's still not that impactful. So, so, so the the only people that have seen this before yeah. are the people that were around in the seventies, okay. And there was no threat of world war in the middle of that as well, you know, frankly. But in the seventies, we did have a we had two massive oil shocks in seventy three and seventy nine. We had you know we had double digit inflation, and as we all know, Volcker came in and raised rates into the I don't know, they go to. 21 or 18, yeah. whatever they went to, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, immediately, that's the playbook. Because yeah. there's nothing else to compare it with. You know, it's not like the Fed hasn't been kind of warning that we're going to stop this. And if it keeps going up, we're going to keep raising until in, until it stops. Yes, I do think I do think the, you know, the 10-year bear market that we had in the 70s, um, I, I, it doesn't feel like that's on the table right no. now, absent some exogenous shock. It's funny. So, so to me, it just seems like you look at our lives, everything's been financialized, right? Everybody's got a stake in something that's financialized. And, and obviously, you know, we've seen this huge boom for just with low interest rates, whether it was in housing, whether it be in just personal expenditures. We've seen, you know, consumer credit go up at a time where, you know, like consumer savings were going down as a, a percentage of all that. But then the pandemic happened, right? And that kind of fixed the balance sheets of consumers to some degree. I guess the way I think about it is, um, you know, I've been in the business for 25 years. And, and to your point, um, I don't ever remember um, inflation being a concern. I remember pre-pandemic actually deflationary deflation. being a concern. I remember talking about universal basic income. These were things that politicians were kind of actually starting to kick the tires on here in the US, not in Iran, here. I'm like a big mean reversion guy. And I think we're going to see a lot of this stuff come back. And so when I think about the potential for what I think is a soft landing, and I think you know anybody's got to bug up their ass about the Fed and what they do and, and how it hurts savers and how it hurts middle class or, or lower class. Well, you just said it for the first time in a very long time, okay, wage earners on the lower end have gotten a raise. And so if the Fed is successful in cooling down the economy with these rate increases, and you could say normalizing rates, you know, go back to 2018 in Jerome Powell's first year, he was on autopilot raising Fed funds 25 basis points. And what happened is when we got into Q4, we had a global growth scare, primarily like China. And then all of a sudden, the stock market here went down 20% in a straight line, and he stopped. And then what happened? The stock market took off. And I guess the scenario that I would say is that, again, you know, back then, we had unemployment below 4%. The Fed's balance sheet was much smaller than it was right now. So, that was a better cocktail, I think, for, you know, like growth and, and, and returns on risk assets. And so, the, I guess the question I would say is like, does all this debt, sovereign debt, weigh down potential for future growth? Maybe though this this one component that you're mentioning is that if the if the worker here has more power all of a sudden, okay, because of reshoring deglobalization, and then all of a sudden we have this huge movement where jobs are coming back here, there could be could there be some sort of equilibrium where maybe you know uh, maybe maybe there is a soft landing. Does that does that make some sense in a way? Because I don't know, man. Like right now, unless we have, doesn't a really it feel like? 
like demand for labor is going to outstrip supply? Well, I mean, that, all the trends you're talking immigra- about, and that's an immigration thing, and we and don't have goes back to immigration, right? I mean, I yeah. it's this is a this is a thorny matter. Okay, so bottom line is, when do we buy them? This past July or August, we had a we had a pretty big snapback yeah. rally, right? Um, and then they set lower lows. Um, that reminded me a lot of, and maybe was that, maybe that was off. Was it, was that off the July earnings or something? They no, got hit so the, you know what it was. was it, it, it was actually it? off of inflation readings. So so so, so what happened was in mid June um, we had um, a CPI reading that was slightly softer than expected, and you know the market was at the lows. Sentiment was really bad, and then we were getting into Q, you know like the end of Q two. We're going to get to Q two earnings season, and then the July. earnings came out and, and crushed the rally. Yeah, and, and essentially, but we had rallied too far. We rallied almost twenty percent. From you know, kind of mid June to kind of that late July. Bear market period. rallies are a bitch. Yeah, right. Because you don't want to get left behind. Yeah, um, and you really feel like you know it's you, a FOMO you, thing. You feel like yeah. I mean, it's when, when everyone's losing money together. You know, well, misery loves come. I hate losing money. I'm losing less than this person. Fine. No one wants to lose money when the market's going up. And uh, you know, so you're right. It's a FOMO thing. So, and, so and I what think we- something that's changed though year over year from 2021 is that obviously last year was a great year. The stock market closed up 28. percent Okay, so there was a lot of retail investors who actually though they were in all the crap, right? They were in the Roku and the Zoom and the Spacs and the this and that, whatever. They were already getting hurt. So come into this year, I think retail has been taken out. Throw crypto in there, and it's like lights out. And so when I looked at what we saw last Thursday and Friday with nearly a 10 percent two-day rally in the NASDAQ, that was off of basically a low. It was basically off of a 52-week low. Sentiment couldn't have been worse. And so to me, that is not viable. Like I wanted to be buying stocks the weeks after, like the week or so after earnings when everything felt horrible. I don't want to be buying them when everyone and their mother, and they're generally hedge funds, either covering Covered. shorts, yeah. right? And then and then people tripping over or each buying other. Buying ETFs or something just for exposure. So, you know, we may have talked about this last time. Um, when do companies have easy comps? Companies haven't had easy comps yet, right? Um, when do the easy comps start? December is going to be a crappy quarter, um, and it was a strong quarter last year. March quarter, we started. People didn't beat numbers that much in March, right? Yeah. And by June, people miss numbers. So we know that June of 2023 are easy comps. Um, we know that companies will look like they are accelerating, um, and it's ridiculous because you just divide. You know, the, the denominator is small, but the growth rate seems higher. Um, and people, people love acceleration. One of the things that the market has taught me in the last few crises is that. It discounts things really quickly. I mean, COVID, for crying out loud, the market spiked down and spiked right back up in six weeks. Um, The market discounts really quickly because there is a lot of money that want that doesn't want to miss. And in that case, they were we were you know investors who who bought the COVID dip, if you will, made a lot of money in two thousand. So yeah, I want to I want to get back positioned in the market three months, six months before the before the, uh, the 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 numbers look like they're accelerating, yeah. 
And what I said to you before is you want to buy, you, you know, you want to buy the last estimate cut. The problem yeah. is you only know what the last estimate cut was in hindsight. How, how, how long would you expect? Let's just say that this was the first material estimate cut for like those major tech names. OK. And, and again, you know, analysts have been lowering their estimates like low single digits. You know what I mean? And just a little bit on the margins here. Right. And so the company's finally guided down. And that was, to me, the first step in acknowledging you have a problem, admitting you have a problem. Right. And it's not that they have a problem. It's just like they're coming out to the street who they have not had to guide down since it was the throes of the pandemic back in that period in 2020. And everybody was given a mulligan back then, right? And so now they're actually saying, okay, we're going to actually have to cut costs here. We're seeing lower demand. The demand thing, especially in the enterprise, it's not something we had heard until I think late July, maybe August, that demand was weakening. And to you and I, if unemployment's going up and the way that we've seen this secular shift towards SaaS sort of products, it just makes sense. Then you're going to see lower licenses for seats. You're going to see lower demand for cloud services, all that sort of thing. So to me, that's really important. So I guess my question is, how many quarters, I say this on CNBC or this podcast all the time, these are not one quarter events. Like They're just not, right? And so usually when you have a company missing guide down, they're going to do it again. That's one of the rules. Okay. So that's one of the rules. No such thing as a one quarter problem. Um, and when everybody in the industry has a one-quarter problem, that's called an industry slowdown, right? Yeah. Um, I, it, it, so, in my experience with, you know, I love doing earnings models because you made your money when you had the highest estimate on the street and, the, and they beat the numbers. Or, you you know, you made your money when, uh, when you had the lowest estimate on the street and they fell short of your numbers. Um, so I, you know, my career that was one of my one of my major focuses was uh, was uh, you know we need to model better than other people, and one of my frustrations with financial analysts is that they model things as a percentage of revenue, they don't model expenses as dollars. They 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 they, they manage expenses as a percentage of revenue. Companies can't control revenue. Revenue comes in where it comes in. I mean, you may have you know companies that close a lot in the last week of the quarter, whatever it is. But revenue comes in where it comes in. Expenses can be changed, which is why they're why they're cutting costs now. But companies miss big time because they because they are growing expenses. Revenues miss massive margin compression. Analysts don't they don't model that correctly because they think R&D is going to be 7% of revenues. Revenue comes down, R&D comes down. No, it doesn't. It keeps growing until they start firing people. You know, revenue comes down, G&A never comes down, right? But if you model as a percentage of revenue, you're never going to capture the margin compression, just like you're never going to capture in, in, for positive revenue surprise, you're never going to um, capture the, the, uh, the margin expansion. I don't think... And so, and that's a that's a that's a flaw in the way people model. I don't think that we have reached the stage yet where people are forecasting companies to be so bad that they'll come out better, right? That the actual numbers will come out better than people are modeling. So you use the example of um, 2000, 2001, 2002. And it was interesting because, you know, the question is, when do you start buying? It really actually you have to decide first, when do you stop selling? Okay, because I remember, you know, uh, you know, 
2002 felt a lot worse than 2001, in, in my opinion. And, and there was still like some uncertainty whether we were in a real bear market, whether the bubble had popped. 2002, it was definite. It was just a series of lower highs and lower lows. But then there was a point in late in the year, and I think you probably remember this, and I, I, I think it was Yahoo's earnings. It was their Q3 earnings in October. The stock was low single digits. It was the poster child for the dot-com you know, kind of bubble, if you will. And it was like trading at cash, and it, I mean, like every analyst hated it. You know, you know what I mean? Like people were still talking about it being a zero. And when a stock is, you know, five or six, you can see it going to zero, right? And you know, they come out with a quarter, they miss, they guide down, but it wasn't as bad as everyone expected. And then that was like it. Rips, right? and that was it. And, and it never looked back. And I'll tell you this: people tried to short it when it doubled, you know, after two months, and you got killed. You got your face ripped off there. And then you started seeing that mentality move to other parts of the market. So not the things that were first hit or hardest hit. Then you started seeing, and then you started seeing relative strength with some of these other sectors that have been left, you know, for dead in value. And so that, to me could be a good analog for what we see late this year into 2023. I'm just thoughts on that a little bit. Um, Because we will discount. Won't we discount um, the recession? We're going to discount 10 of the next one true turning points. Okay, it's what we saw back in uh, back in June. Okay, it's what you saw in the last two days. And one of them will be right. So one of them will be that Yahoo thing that you remember, but the six things that were false signs, you forget them now, right? And so, um, yeah, one of them will be right. I just don't know when it is yet. Um, I, I but is the macro if, really I, important right now? So, like we just talked about, you know, kind of inflation and interest rates. Think about this. Let's just say that we're kind of near the the Fed being done with raising interest rates. We've already seen shipping rates. Rollover. We've seen a lot of industrial commodity prices rollover. You mentioned wages; those are going to be sticky. We've seen housing rollover, right? We've seen we've seen a lot of things kind of come back, you know, towards that kind of mean, if you will, right? And so, I guess my my point is is like maybe there is a scenario though where you know we we basically the macro does enough to kind of get us back to a place where these companies don't have to cut to the bone. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just I'm tr- trying to be a little silver lining-ish here. So the group that turned us in 2003 was, were, were semis. And the Sox, I think, was down 80% off the peak. I mean, it had just gotten crushed. And they were, you know, and these are these are, these are companies that sell physical things. There's nothing ephemeral about this. There's no clicks. There's yeah. no, you know. There, Eyeballs and all that. Yeah, no. Yeah. There's there's no, you know, price to, to you know, off-balance sheet revenue or whatever yeah. the stuff that happens with cloud companies. And there was this massive glut of semis because everybody had built up all this internet infrastructure. PCs were had gone bananas. Cell phones were going bananas, and you know Nokia was a massive consumer. I remember back then, yeah. and you know they had this massive amount of inventory, and it was if they buried, you know, tens of millions of phones. <laughs> In the Sahara Desert or something in the summer of 2020, sorry, summer of 2003, and they had a transition. I mean, people don't remember this back then, right? Uh, from black and white cell phones to color, and you got a little product cycle story yeah. in phones, and the whole semiconductor industry came roaring back. And that's an industry where you do see that massive margin expansion when yeah. that happens. Because you have the fixed uh, costs. And, and, yeah. and it's another one where yeah. you had trough multiples on yeah. trough earnings. Yeah. So 
I tend to like to look at semis as an early indicator of things getting better. If you're really focused on it right now, I mean, if you look at the SMH, for instance, it's up 35% in the last, I don't know, I want to call it a month or so. Um, and, and that is pretty astounding. At its lows, it was down maybe 48 49%. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to look at a group like that. Intel can't get out of its own way. AMD is still down, you know, 55% or something like that. But a huge contributor to the, the weight of it is NVIDIA, which is going to report earnings this week. And I think that's going to be really an important one. That stock is up 55% off of its lows in that period. So it's driving a lot of that semi performance. So we, we'll look at semis because of the cyclical nature because of basically the leverage that they do have, they'll kind of move first. I'm with you on that one. These big mega, you know, cap companies, again, it'll be interesting to see if some of the cuts that they're making on the cost side give them the opportunity to not guide lower, maybe make some of the lowered estimates. Okay, so we won't know that um, until January. Um, a lot of the SaaS stuff, to your point, I think that it seems like you got a little bug. That's a that's a new wrinkle. Uh, over the last 20 years that didn't exist because it's a, a generally a, a, a different model here. But how do you think about that? Because a lot of those companies, again, were trading 30, 40 times sales, um, many while they were still going lower. And those multiples are they're getting to high single digits, you know, now-ish, but they probably have to overshoot, don't they, to somewhere, you know, mid to low single digits. I have never made money in SaaS. I have never made money on the long side or the short yeah. side, so I just stopped participating. I'm good at stuff that you can touch. Yeah. Um, so I'm good at a device. Yeah. Uh, I'm good at a semiconductor. Um, um, for, interestingly, I'm good at, I've, I've been good at internet-related things because they're more like different business yeah. models. Um, software and SaaS have, um, oh, package software, right? When Microsoft used to sell yeah. stuff in a carton, that was good. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep, and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here, and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash OK. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. Let's talk about Tesla really quickly before we get out of here, because sure. we spent some time talking about Elon and Tesla. And, you know, that week that, that you and I had our last pod, he had just made his bid for Twitter. Now, at that, that time, yeah. yeah, was it that day? Okay. So $44 billion, it didn't change. He bought it for $44 billion. Um, he took about $13 billion in debt um, from these banks. And I got to tell you, if you're looking at the debt that he took and you're looking at the terms in which they negotiated, where interest rates were then, where they are now, that debt is going to be a 
huge problem um, for Twitter and for him specifically, given what he wants to do with the company, less reliance on advertisers, advertisers are leaving, he wants to go to subscription models, there's no reason to believe that users are going to kind of buy into that, revenues are going to be much less, he's cutting costs fairly dramatically there. Now, again, I'm talking about Twitter, but you and I wanted to start out talking about something you'd touch, your beautiful Tesla car, your investment in the in the company, which you did at a very early level. You were a huge believer in the secular move. You were a believer in his ability to do what he did. But now, all of a sudden, when you think about Tesla below $200, down from over, this is 400 last year. I got to think that this company, you know, again, it was not going to be immune to all the issues that, that its tech peers were, but he's making it worse. And his huge challenge that he's taken on with Twitter makes absolutely no sense if you are a Tesla diehard here and you're in it, you're in the Tesla story. If anything, it is like an anchor around your neck as a Tesla shareholder. Now, I'm just curious thoughts on that because it's a big unholy mess. I violently agree. Yeah. I mean, well, you agreed is, then. And, this is terrible. Yeah. This is absolutely terrible. And, you know, I mean, we're supposed to, we're not, we're not doctors. Um, so we're not even held to the Goldwater rule. Um, we're not going to diagnose him. We don't know what his issues are. But this really, you know, this is a man who has done some truly remarkable things, changed industries. He's, you know, arguably, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> Twitter stuff. Even before the Twitter stuff, I mean, this is a guy, arguably the single most important non-country um, uh, leader in the world. I would argue that, and this, you know, the I, I know the lawsuit is going on right now over his uh, over his compensation. Yeah. You know, when they when they announce that, you look at the numbers, and if you're a Tesla bull. You think he really can increase the market cap by tenfold, and you knew that he was going to make you know fifty billion dollars if that happened. And you said, "Cool, if I can get a ten bagger, you know, I'm happy with Elon. Yeah, Elon. I don't care what they pay Elon, right? I mean, so you know, and you cannot argue that whatever Tesla's market cap is, um, Elon is, you know." enormously responsible for. I think we've had this conversation yeah. before about second, you know, Tim Cook has generated a hell of a lot more market cap than Steve Jobs yeah. did. Um, he's done a great job, but he wasn't the founder. No question yeah. that electric cars are a secular theme, yeah. right? I mean, got a lot of pushback from that, even last yeah. year, year before. And then it became, it's a secular theme, but Ford's going to kill him with the Mustang or, you know, there's a new there's a new EQ series from Mercedes, or what about Rivian and uh, um, and Lucid? Uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear who the industry leader is, and I think it's pretty clear that the, the that you know electric cars, which are I don't know probably still less than five percent of the car market, are going to you know take over the entire industry at some point. Great, it's not a competitive issue. It's not a demand issue. Um, it has been a it, is, it has been a supply issue for the company. Yeah. I mean, what they've really been focusing on for the last year is, is getting these two new factories in, uh, um, in Germany and Texas ramping. It doesn't, f you know, I mean, there are people thinking they were going to ship a quarter million units out of each factory in 2022. Okay, they're not yeah. going to come close to that. Um, so what Tesla needs to do is build more cars, deliver more cars, and service more cars. It may not be that exciting, but it's what they need to do. And yeah, they're doing a robot thing, and they're still working on autonomous driving. Wow. What they have to do is build more cars. Do I like it? Oh, and by the way, the CEO has this other little venture 
that forget going to Mars, yeah. the entire future of the company depends on the rocket that that they have wanted to ship, you know, they, they wanted to, uh, uh, you know, have the first true demo of, you know, for the last year, it's supposed to be in December. I don't know if it gets pushed out again. Um, I don't know how, and I own, you know, we own a fair bit of SpaceX yeah. privately. Kind of wish he was paying attention there too. So, so as a shareholder of SpaceX, again, I, I think you could probably reliably think that at some point in the not so distant future, SpaceX will have a trillion dollar market value, and whether it be still in the private markets, because maybe it can. But if it ever goes public, if you thought Tesla was a mania, SpaceX will be an absolute mania. And I guess the thing I would just say about Tesla really quickly is that you talked about Giga Germany and Austin. Okay. Well, here's the deal. He's never really had to deal with a demand issue because of the secular shift. And you talk about competition. Well, think about Germany. Those Mercedes, those Porsches, those Audis, those are hot cars. So on the high end, everybody who is inclined to buy a $130,000 sedan, okay, is definitely going to look at one of those cars as a competitor to a Model S, in my opinion. Okay? He seeded a lot of market share in the $100,000. Yes, and they focused on the lower end. Okay. Now, I spent I a lot Model of time- y, I think the Model Y was the, was the number one seller in Germany in the last quarter. Or, but but, or, but or, here's the thing. I'll just tell you this, Dan. I, I Every time I have the opportunity in, in as far as Uber or Lyft, okay, to take one of those lower end ones, I do, because I just want to like feel how shitty they are. They are not great cars. And I know car people, the lower end ones, they feel like they're they're rickety. I, I always ask the Uber drivers what they think about them. They're just happy that they're not paying for gas. I, I mean, like, and that's purely anecdotal. I, I mean, but I, and I get it. So my issue is that I think they will have a demand issue. Okay, I think they're going to have a demand issue in China. I think they're going to have a demand issue in Europe. I think that F Ford and GM are serious as hell about competing with them on the mid to lower end. Then you say to yourself, you just told me you wish he was not tweeting all day, essentially. You think you wish he was not dealing with the culture wars. You wish he was not going on Twitter encouraging his 115 million followers to vote for Republican Congress people. Okay? So so all of those wrapped up. And here's the other thing I'll just say about Twitter. Jack Dorsey, who co-founded the company, was running it into the ground, which is very clear over the last year. Okay, He was running it into the ground as the co-CEO of two companies. So this guy is out now, must today, in a Reuters article, I don't know what they're, they're quoting. 120 hours a week. Yeah. He, he, he's going to burn out. Well, we've thought that before. Well, he's not a robot. He's, he's a he's not a, a, he's a man. He tends to yeah, well, and he tends to focus on you know he's got a lot of things going on. He's got the boring company too, and Neuralink and whatever. He does tend to focus on one of the things pretty pretty um, uh, passionately. Um, you know, I used to have a bunch of executives who was close to a Tesla that are for the most part gone, but I do remember talking to a very very senior guy who said that during the Model 3, right, remember the Model 3 manufacturing problem? They loved the days that Elon didn't come into the office because they got a lot more done. So this is our opportunity to see what Tesla does when Elon's not paying attention as much. What I worry about is the brand. Do you look at Tesla and think of it as an extension of Elon or not? I don't know. Right, I do because I've been doing it for so long. But do new car buyers think, 
I don't want to buy a car from, you know, that I wouldn't the, buy a car from, from, from Elon Musk. I don't Musk, want to be on right? Twitter because they, one thing I'll just say is that, you know, there's going to come a time, and I know that you've used this expression, the, the, the Elon halo effect on the valuation and that sort of thing. The stock's going to be low enough, and in my opinion, uh, and I don't have a position. I was short um, a bit this year. Um, it's going to go low enough where the day that he leaves, whether he's ousted, stock whether goes up. the stock goes up, I'm just telling you, it's going to happen. And it used to be the opposite. It, it used to be that you know, 20%, it would have been an air pocket lower. You know what I mean? And so, um, what's so the market cap now? It's 600 billion. I, which is, I, 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 th- I think there's still an Elon halo. Yeah, but but I, I, listen, I mean, I'm just telling you. So that time I, has not happened yet. I think right? it's literally one of the worst stock charts in the entire market. I really do. It is a massive head and shoulders um, formation over the last two and a half years. November 2020, the stock was just below, I think, $150. S&P announced it was going into the um, S&P 500. It literally doubled. And then it doubled in the next month or so. I think it's going to probably round trip to that 150 or so. And then there's going to be tons of shareholder lawsuits. You know, listen... A lot of our listeners are getting sick of me ranting about this. I don't care. I'm not talking my book. I'm just telling you, in my 25 years in this business, and make no mistake about it, we were in a huge asset bubble in the last couple of years. Never have I seen the poster child for asset bubbles or the poster child hey, for- You know, I hear you, disagree you with guys that? talk about it that way. Um, it's the best secular growth story. At the worst valuation. Whatever. It's the best yeah. secular growth story in the market that I know of. Okay, this company is growing at fifty. What, so are you, you're this long, company are you is growing Tesla? at fifty yeah. percent. This company has a has a supply problem. Yeah. Uh, Does it though? Because I thought that I thought those those delivery numbers and the channel like that's this is they have be- said that every quarter they always have this big push at the end of the quarter yeah. and every quarter they say it's going to be the last time we do this, but they produce more cars than they expect to. What happens? to Tesla if they beat the December quarter? Well, I mean, shorts are going to have to cover it. But do you think there's a scenario, though, where um, this company, again, going back to, like, I'm looking at, you know, revenue growth expectations. They're going from, you know, 55% this year to 40% next year to 23% in 2024. And if to compete with the infrastructure that, like, let's say the Germans or the Japanese or the Koreans or the or Detroit have, if expenses start going up and those margins start coming in, then it becomes just another car company. There is a time where Tesla is a car company, if nothing else happens, right? If autonomous doesn't happen, and I'm not a big fan of autonomous, um, you know, if Optimus doesn't happen, I don't know what to think about Optimus. If solar doesn't happen, I don't know what to think about that either. But yes, there is a point where Tesla's a car company. Now, does the industry, you know, this is the, this is some of the, you know, crazier analysts talk, you know, do we end up with cars as a service, yeah. right? Do people, does the whole model change and they lead with fleets and they're competing with Uber? I don't know. I don't know. You are 100% right. Absent new things, they are a car company, maybe the most profitable car company in the industry, they have the yeah. highest margins in the industry. They may be the low cost producer in the industry. I think that you can make that, certainly can make that argument. Um, you know, when, when, when the CEO of VW says, we can't compete with that factory. It's telling you something. Um, I 
you know, how many years did I hear about how IBM was going to kill every PC company because when they put their full weight behind it, oh my God, you know, well, they knew how to make mainframes. Um, you know, the, the, the companies you all named are really good at, at, at developing internal combustion engine cars that they sell and service through dealers. Yeah, it's a different model. Yeah, it's a different model. Trying, and again, you can make the he's 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 increased adoption of of this you know of of EVs, and he's pushed it forward. He's pushed all the others to do it. If if nothing else, if that's his legacy, I'm just saying, if he kind of wrapped it up and and, and turned in the keys to Fremont or wherever he is now in Austin, it would be an amazing. The, the mission of the company was to accelerate the. Uh, um, the move yeah. towards. Uh, I just question his again. I, I just yeah. question, you know, him. Uh, you know, again, we, we can't all diagnose do. him. No, but my point <laughs> is, he's taking on such big things. I know. And, and, and Twitter is and Twitter is not the thing he thinks it is, and and SpaceX clearly is, and and EVs clearly is. I just think he's full of shit. And and I, you know, again, and I'll, you know what, my New Year's resolution in 2023 is going to be to stop ranting about it. Um, and, and how many human beings who are not company, not sorry, country leaders, yeah. are above the fold? Yeah. In the in the New York Times, Washington Post, and uh, yeah. and Washington well, Journal, every me, single day that makes him very dangerous. One hundred percent. I agree. One hundred. I've been saying I think he's one of the most dangerous people on the planet. The Bond fact that he the thinks that, oh, that that he that that fit, the fact that he thinks that he can talk to Putin or his people and try to negotiate, you know, through Kremlin talking points. The, you know, the fact that he embraces free speech, but he actually has to embrace the Chinese, the most authoritarian regime in the world, because he needs the growth and he needs the manufacturing over there. So I think he's just a, a massive hypocrite. I think he's full of shit. I think he's dangerous. One last comment. With Tesla and with uh, SpaceX, he is a chess player who is thought 20 moves ahead. Yeah. And he's done a better job than the rest of us trying to... He's been right. Yeah. With Twitter, it feels like he's thinking one day ahead, one move ahead. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think he's in a bit of an echo chamber. I think guys like him don't really have friends. And I think a lot of people have kind of worked him into a situation that really could be the downfall of his. This is, I think this is like his next computer phase. I really do, um, if you want to equate it to Steve Jobs or so. It worked out for Steve. It worked out for Steve, but I think he was probably in a very low point. If you read any of those biographies, he was not the Steve Jobs that he was in, you know, in the in the 70s and early 80s or again in the late 90s into the 2000s. And it was probably a really dark period for him, and I think that's probably where he's going, sadly. So, listen, Dan Benton, you are one of the most brilliant market minds that I know. I've really enjoyed over the last, I want to say, six or seven years um, becoming friends. Can I call you a friend? Um, and uh, I love having you on here. I hope you come back every quarter and give us your download on what's going on in tech and in the markets. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.